Anybody remember uh, what uh, airplane name Glamorous Glennis was from? The Bell X-1. Which was flown by... That was, that was Charles Yeager. Yep. There you go. The man who broke the sound barrier. If we ever have a space Jeopardy or something, I think Gene would win, hands down. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No yeah. question. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 15, 14, 13, 12. Oh no, wait, this isn't a launch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your host, Sawyer Rosenstein, and as you can hear by all the laughter, we are joined by quite a full house tonight, including Gene McCulloch. Welcome, Gene. It's good to have the band back together, Sawyer. I'm really looking forward to this episode. Oh, phenomenal. Yes. As well as Dr. Kat Robinson. Hello. And we're all in the same time zone, I think, <laughs> for once. We actually are. Uh, that includes Mark Ratterman. Hello and hello and hello. Hello, hello, hello. And hello, Larry Heron. Hello, Sawyer. How you doing? I'm doing great. And I'm also happy to be here. It's so nice to hear all the voices again, I gotta say. So I think the best thing to do having all these voices is to jump right into the latest news and stories here going on in space so we can talk about them. Ooh, that'd be a good title, Talking Space. Anyway, (laughs) uh, we'll begin the news roundup here uh, in the debate of, as it's being called on social media, the debate of the fish people as uh, SpaceX Uh, continues to deal with a lawsuit from the Center for Biological Diversity ahead of their planned second flight test of Starship. Larry, I'll let you go into the details of where we're at. Thanks, Sawyer. So we have a few different aspects to talk about this time. We've got not only the fish people, but we've got uh, the uh, the lawsuit that's involved. Uh, I guess you could maybe say that those were some fish people as well, but... At any rate, uh, the SpaceX lawsuit is really going just according to schedule. Um, the defendants finally lodged the administrative record on September 29th, which was exactly what their deadline was for doing that. And now the plaintiffs are able to challenge the contents of that administrative record, and they were due to have that done by October 27th, which is today as we record this. Uh, and all the information that I've been able to dig up so far suggests that they might have asked for a postponement on that deadline. So that's where things sit with the lawsuit. So meanwhile, SpaceX continues to wait on the FAA for its launch license, and the FAA is waiting on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to finish their biological consultation. So there was an updated statement from the Fish and Wildlife Service regarding the Starship status. Uh, so they said basically that on October 19th, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service reinitiated the Endangered Species Act consultation with the FAA. And that means that they have 135 days in total from that date, from October 19th, to issue an amended biological opinion. Under Section 7 of the Endangered Species Act, reinitiation of formal consultation is required when a project changes significantly. The amount of take issued previously is exceeded. We've talked about that with uh, Eric Resch on previous episodes, take being a uh, fancy word for uh, fish or wildlife that is killed. Uh, or we have new information on listed species not previously considered or a new species is listed. So for SpaceX reinitiation with the FAA, they're also considering, meaning taking into account and reviewing the operation of a deluge system at the launch pad. So 
there are some people who say that this all may be resolved as early as November 6th. And from everything that we can tell, that's probably not going to happen. However, they have talked about not expecting to take the full amount of time that they were originally allotted that 135 days. So it could be any anywhere from 10 days from now to 135 days from now that uh, that a decision is made, and then it may not be over then. If the TCEQ needs to get involved, and it just might, then who knows how long things might take. Yeah, Larry, I'm going to just interject a couple of things here. One, uh, and Sawyer, this is something that appeared on nasaspaceflight.com. This was in the uh, this was in your archives, so to speak, on on the uh, on the uh, on the website. Gentleman by the name of uh, Harry Stranger on Twitter um, or X, as it's called now, excuse me, brought this up, and it was a diagram of a launch pad that uh, Rocket Lab is building for their new booster over at Wallops Island. I believe this is Launch Complex Pad 0D. And on the the map, and I'm looking at it right here, and I don't, if if I can find a link to it, um, we'll, we'll put it up in the show notes. But uh, the there's, there's the test stand, and lo and behold, there is a water deluge containment trench in there. And I think that's what is, what is the sticking point over at, uh, at, at uh, Boca Chica. And it's interesting that uh, Larry, you had mentioned Eric uh, Resch. He, he went ahead and, and posted this also on Twitter right. uh, or X and said, quote, weird how this launch pad design includes complete containment and treatment facilities for the deluge water from a you know a a a a liquid powered rocket it's almost as if it's an explicit requirement under the clean water act and that's where we stay with spacex here that type of system doesn't exist over at boca chica and from what i understand and from what eric has transmitted on the program you can't do it there (laughs) because again the clean water act is in your way and, I think that's ultimately what we're what we're talking about. Not only that, but if you if you tried to do it, if you tried to do it the right way under the Clean Water Act, it would take way longer than 135 days to get that done. It would take, from what Eric tells us, somewhere closer to a year or more. That's correct. So, so yeah, there's. It'll be very interesting to see how this all plays out. It would be interesting, for instance, to see how things play out if they get their launch license, if they do everything that they need to get the to do to get their launch license and still there's the the lawsuit hanging over things does the lawsuit prevent the launch or not interesting question uh, yeah and and uh, just just to throw one other thing i believe uh, last week there was a hearing over on capitol hill concerning all of this and regulation and so on and there were a few uh, companies up up on the dais including spacex that was represented by uh, by bill gerstenmeier and one of the things he was trying to say was that uh, this whole thing is is the whole thing is is just based on on regulation, which is what's in our way, and it's it's extraordinarily intrusive. And I believe uh, Tim Fernholtz from Quartz basically said, "Well, no, that's not quite true." And I think he posted also that on uh, on also on X. So. I'll try to see if I can find that, that his exact quote. I don't have it in front of me, but I will go ahead and, and try to see if I can locate it and I'll put it in the show notes too. So uh, at least, you know, we've got all our bases covered. But again, I just wanted to point that out, that it's not just regulations. It's SpaceX trying to do something that they didn't quite really, really think through. And that's that's where I think we're coming from. Agreed. This is something we will absolutely be keeping an eye out on, as we have been, uh, especially as the uh, intensity grows towards a potential launch for Starship. So we will see whether that prevents a launch or not, and if any changes need to be made before or after the next liftoff. We will go from the groundwater to space as uh, the Lucy spacecraft prepares for its first asteroid flyby, and it is coming up sooner than you might think. Gene. 
That's right, Sawyer. November 1st, the uh, Lucy mission, which is going to be doing a flyby of 10 asteroids during its 12-year mission, will be doing its very first flyby again on November 1st. This is the flyby of the asteroid Dinkanesh. Just to test its instruments and in uh, preparation for visits all over the place in to multiple Trojan asteroids. So this is going to be a big deal. This is going to be a big test for the spacecraft uh, and the team. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what, uh, what Lucy finds out about this asteroid. Again, we haven't really probably, we haven't really seen it. Uh, it's less than about a half a mile, according to NASA or about a kilometer wide wide. It uh, circles the sun in the main belt of the asteroids located between the orbits of Mars and, and, and Jupiter. And it's been, the spacecraft has been virtually visually tracking Dinkanesh since I think according to the website here, September 3rd. So it's got a good lock. We'll see what we can see on November 1st. And I'm looking forward to uh, seeing the images. And for everyone on Twitter to start or X start saying, Oh, Lucy, I'm home. <laughs> I had to. Uh, let's bring it back to Earth here for a bit, and we will talk about India, who just made a big announcement recently of their plan to have their own space station, to have their own people step foot on the moon, to have a rover on Mars, and an orbiter around Venus. The timeline for all of this? Within about 20 years or so, which seems Quite ambitious to me, at least, Gene. I think you and I are on the same page on yeah. I mean, there's a lot, of, a lot, and a little bit of time. Yeah, there, well, you know, I, I'll, I'll just, just play devil's advocate a little bit. We went from 15 minutes in space to landing on the moon in what eight years. Grant you, we, we basically put how much of our gross national product into the mission. So. <laughs> You know, but again, I, I don't know whether whether or not India is going to go ahead and, and be willing to make a huge investment like that. I know they're talking about landing a human being on the surface of the moon in 2040. Uh, my thought is, why don't we try to see if we can get them involved in the Artemis program? Uh, there may be some political sticky wickets there that would prevent that. But uh you know, they are they're ambitious, but I'm not too sure about the timetable. I mean, my thought on it is that India has been pretty progressive in getting their stuff to space. They came out of nowhere, it almost it seems like, and then full speed ahead into, you know, all of their satellite launches, the new vehicles. You've got GSLV coming up online. You know, there's a lot going on with India. So maybe there's a chance, but it, I think a lot of that's also going to depend on their funding of if they're really yeah. that committed and they're willing to put the money in. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I know just to do a counterpoint here, I know that uh, uh, the president of Russia, uh, Vladimir Putin, said today that they're going to launch the first element of their space station in 2027. Uh, and I'm kind of dubious about that date, too, given what's been going on in, in the background. Uh, so... I will I will wait and, and and see about that one, but uh, I'll put it to you this way: they've they've pretty much said they've pretty much done everything they said they were going to do as far as India is concerned. Yeah, I was going to say with with India, I know that um, coming from a slightly different viewpoint because I was having this conversation recently at an event in South Australia, and the South Australian government has been working with India and. Um, on space things, but India sees space as a really important economic driver for their economy. And so they're heavily invested. And I expect that um, plans that are announced will be stuck to, of course, in space timelines are always a bit spongy um, for various reasons. But I, I do think that this is something that India sees as a really important economic driver for them, as well as the benefits that they can get from space technology spinoffs because of their large population, many of which are living in poverty. Well said. And everything in space is all a bit wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. <laughs> I think you, you covered it pretty well, Kat. I think they, they've got that they've got uh, they've got the incentive, and uh, we'll see what India can do in the future. Yes, yeah, space. Very true. I wanted to say uh, 
about space time being wobbly bobbly when you said that it just made me think of uh if anyone watched the good place i feel like space time is a bit like jeremy Barry time oh, okay mine was the doctor who <laughs> reference but that works too i'll take it yeah <laughs> i'll take it oh boy okay now <laughs> uh now that things came to a screeching halt let's <laughs> let's try to get things back on track here uh and let's talk about osiris rex it came back we saw some really cool pictures of some of the samples up close that they've got so far and a lot of that is going to be studied now some of it is going to be stored away just like they have with the lunar samples from the apollo missions to be studied in the future as technology improves and some of it is going where larry some of it's going to be put on display for any of us to go see whenever we want. So they they announced, uh, NASA announced actually last month that there were three museums that were going to get uh, samples to display. First one was the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., also the Space Center Houston in Texas, and also the University of Arizona's Alfie Norval Gem and Mineral Museum in Tucson. As an Arizona alum, I've got to say bear down. yes Uh, and so uh the last thing i heard about this was that uh the smithsonian has been told to to expect their samples somewhere around november 3rd so sometime surely by say mid-november you should be able to go there and take a look for yourself wow that's fast (laughs) yeah and if anybody is interested, the United States Post Office also has a commemorative stamp out there. If you are interested in picking that up, it's about thirteen twenty for for a sheet of twenty stamps. And it, I'm looking at the picture of it. It looks kind of cool. It depicts the uh, the sample return uh, capsule coming in with uh, with the chute and uh, and just right over the Utah desert. And it's 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 kind of cool looking. It really is. I, I really should order some before they run out or before I totally forget. Yeah, totally I'm gonna... I need one to go with my comic. <laughs> Ooh, there you go. <laughs> I've already promised a, a sheet to somebody um, that is not here in the U.S. anymore. So I'm going to have to go ahead and grab that. <laughs> cool. Yeah, let me know uh, what you do. And uh, I don't know, maybe we can give it like a call sign or something, which Mark, by the way, that was one of the worst transitions I've ever made on this show <laughs> in over 300 episodes. Uh, got a really cool story uh, relating to spacecraft names. Well, actually, that was a good segue because uh, this week I was at work. I was out on the airport. And uh, for me, the excitement is when you see something different than the usual aircraft that are that are taken off landing or in the pattern. And so I hear a call sign, Rocket 11. I go, Rocket 11? Who's that? And it's a flight of four uh, military trainers. And they came in kind of in trail and landed and took off and did the same thing the next day. And it got me thinking about, and I'm going to circle back, but it got me thinking about uh, warbirds from World War II. It got me thinking about people and nicknames I've, I've worked with for these people and spacecraft. So first, the aircraft. And if you want to do an image search, my dad was in World War II, so I tend to look at that as a romanticize it. And honestly, there is nothing about war that is romantic. But the soldiers that fight, the people that are involved in it, they do things to personalize and and keep their spirits up. So if you look for nose art on aircraft, you'll see things that are safe for work and some that are not safe for work. You'll see names like um, Executive Suite, um, of course, the Memphis Bell, Honey Bunny, um, all kinds of different, uh, Miss Pickup, uh, Section 8. Um, I found another one that I'm not seeing right now is called My Nine, and it related to the crew of B-17s in World War II, nine soldier, nine airmen on board. Um, Also, things like... um, Honey Bunny and and Waddy's Wagon. <laughs> so there's a lot of humor in that. And that's something that I don't see that much present these days with spacecraft. Uh, as far as people, I've worked around controllers. One guy went by the nickname of Potamus. 
Had another guy, Bunzi. Another guy we called Lurch. One was nicknamed Fish. Another guy, we just called him by his initials, IZ, which was not his name, but his other nickname was the Mayor of Sneeds because he lived near Sneeds, Florida. Okay, so enough about people. Oh, I guess I got to include myself in there. At one point, I shared a story from uh, shortly after I started working at Gainesville, and I became Sparkle to some people. The Sparkle relates to sparks flying and, you know, that sort of thing. Anyway, back to uh, back to people. How can we forget from uh, Top Gun, Maverick, Goose, Iceman, uh, other contemporaries, uh, pilot nicknamed Bam Bam or his call sign Bam Bam, Ollie, and things like that. Let's hit back to uh, spacecraft. And, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've missed something here, but it just doesn't seem like we really have much that relates to. Let's go back to the Apollo program. I looked at a list of nicknames for uh, or call signs for command module and lunar module. And I'm just going to run through them real quick. Apollo 9, Gumdrop and Spider. Apollo 10, Command Module, Charlie Brown and Snoopy. 11, Columbia and Eagle. 12, Yankee Clipper and Intrepid. 13, Odyssey and Aquarius. 14, Kitty Hawk and Antares. 15, Endeavor and Falcon. 16, Casper and Orion. 17, America and Challenger. And yet, what do I hear when I... Pick up a clip of launch for Crew 7, but it's uh, Dragon Houston, uh, your go for launch. Dragon Houston, uh, you know, you're on track for, you know, your launch vector. We need to do better. Now, I'd like some comments from the rest of the crowd on this. Well, um, a couple of things. First off, just when we were talking about this at pre-show, do you know why – it was called Gumdrop, the command module on Apollo Nine. I had, anybody? I didn't. I didn't know it was. Yeah, surprise. Uh, that was Dave Scott, who was the uh, command module pilot for that mission. He named it Gumdrop because when the CSM arrived, when the when the command module arrived, it was uh, just the just the command module itself. And it was all wrapped up in, in protective cellophane and, and mylar and all that. And Dave Scott thought, geez, that thing looks like a gumdrop sitting there. So that's what, cause it was all wrapped up like a piece, like a gumdrop candy. So that's how it got its name. Uh, the, the names, as you notice, Mark, got a little less, uh, colorful <laughs> toward as he got to Apollo 11. Because uh, because word came down, and the reason why the way they went with call signs was, well, okay, fine. You call you had had the just one ship on Apollo eight, and that was the command service module. Now you've got the command module and the lunar module for Apollo nine. If you called up for Apollo nine, who was going to answer the the lamb or the uh, or the command module? Didn't know. So the idea was, okay, let's name these things. So then this way. You've got, uh, we know now who we're calling. Uh, but word came down from on high over at NASA HQ that uh, the crews have got to go ahead and just name these, start naming these things kind of respect, respectfully, especially when we're talking about the first lunar landing. And, you know, word came down from the mountain there that you'd better come up with something really, really cool and really, really appropriate for, for the moment. And I think that crew came up with two good uh, good names uh, for for their spacecraft and that tradition just went forward from the Apollo program so that that was that was the key reason why mark as you know and uh, as everybody else knows uh, each for for the um, the dragon missions they have to I believe the first crew has the honor of naming that particular spacecraft. So they do have names. I don't know why they're not using them. Hmm. Interesting. Well, think, think down the road at some point, we're actually going to have multiple crews and multiple spacecraft doing multiple different kinds of missions. And when spaceflight gets to be commonplace versus going for a ride on the ISS for six months, there's probably going to be some character given to 
these vehicles by their crew. It'll be, it'll be commercial. It'll be private. It'll be all kinds of things. And, um, I think that's when we'll probably see some definite character thrown into it, but I don't know. I'd like to see more now. And for those wondering, I mean, obviously we know all the names of the shuttles. The names for the Dragon Capsules are one of my favorites, Endeavor, Resilience, Endurance, and Freedom. So again, kind of on the cleaner lines, but just a fun fact for people that don't realize, there has been an Endeavor for three straight programs now when you go for Apollo, then you go to Shuttle, and then you go to Crew Dragon. So... Just fun facts there. Learn something new every day. Anybody remember uh, what uh, the call call sign or airplane name Glamorous Glennis was from? The Bell X-1. Who was, which was flown by? That was, that was Charles Yeager. Yep. There you go. The man who broke the sound barrier. That if was the only one that space- popped into my head, so. If we ever have a space Jeopardy or something, I think Gene would win hands down. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. No question. (laughs) All right. Um, Mark, I know you had one more quick thing you wanted to mention, too, before we move on. I will, lest our listeners get tired of listening to me. But NASA has a graphic novel that they have produced three issues now. It's called First Woman, NASA's Promise for Humanity. And the first one is called Dream to Reality, and it goes on from there. They just released issue three. I hope everybody will listen, uh, actually look it up. NASA.gov, Callie, C-A-L-L-I-E, first, F-I-R-S-T, but it'll be in the show notes. Hope you enjoy it. This is part two of the uh, of the series, and I'm so looking forward to reading this. I haven't read it yet. It just came out, like, what, two days ago, I think, Sawyer? And I'm so eager to go ahead and continue the, the, the saga here. Mark, did you say this was part three? My mistake. Uh, issue two just dropped, like Gene said, and issue three is coming soon. All right. There we go. And Mark, I don't think we'll ever get tired of hearing your voice on here, so don't worry. Let's move on then to one of our major topics of the night. And this one takes us to Mars, or does it? There are some questions now after an independent review board uh, took a look at the planned Mars sample return mission. If you'll remember, the current Mars rover that is out there now, the Mars 2020 mission, also known as Perseverance, part of its mission was to collect samples and then drop them off for a future mission to come pick them up and return them to Earth so that we could study samples from the surface of Mars. Well, now a new report is saying that there likely is not enough funding available to accomplish any mission of that kind. Gene, Larry, which one of you want to take this first? I will exceed. I will go ahead and yield the floor, Larry. Go ahead. You you kick us off. (laughs) Well, uh, so the Mars sample return is a deep space exploration priority for NASA. Uh, in collaboration with uh, the European Space Agency. But the MSR was established with an unrealistic budget and schedule expectations from the beginning, according to this new report. Gene, you got some details. Yeah, I do, actually. The There was an extensive presentation at the uh, Mars Exploration Advise- Advisory Group uh, on this uh, gentleman by by the name of Orlando Figueroa, who was a member of the IRB, gave a very, very cogent presentation on what the IRB found and what was going on. First, uh, the IRB was charged uh, to look at if the scope and cost and schedule was all understood and lined up properly. And if the current distribution of work across NASA centers best positioned the program for technical and schedule and cost success, is the management approach and structure adequate? And our lessons from the uh, Mars 2020 program and, of course, the James Webb Space Telescope or other flagship missions also being looked at when uh, and properly applied when uh when going through all of this and they did find that uh 
Well, to, to give you first the good news, uh, they went ahead and looked at uh, basically the Mars sample return and the whole impetus for the mission, saying it, it definitely represents the critical next step in the strategic program for Mars exploration. Basically, this whole started four decades ago with, with Viking. And the whole idea from that point was really, really to go ahead and, and find a way to get a sample from from Mars back to Earth. Yes, we've got meteorites and so on that scatter all over the place from Mars, but nothing beats you know getting a sample with context. And that's what they were they were trying to do with the Mars sample return mission. And that's what the Perseverance rover is trying to do with all of what it's gathering and all of all of these samples. Uh, the uh, MSR mission will return scientifically selected samples of Mars to address key scientific questions using the most sensitive laboratories back here on Earth. Uh, it's a top priority for the last two decadal surveys. Uh, also, it will inform the United States' moon-to-Mars strategy by characterizing the environmental conditions, by validating you know, backward planetary protection assurance, and by demonstrating the launch from the surface of Mars, something we've never never done before. And of course, providing leadership in space exploration as uh, one of the findings here is definitely a hallmark of the United States' soft power in the world. Also something that was mentioned in the IRB report that China has announced plans for a Mars sample return mission and they claim it's going to be launched in 2028 or 2020 or 2030. I'm sorry. Um, these plans basically challenge the United States. It's technical, engineering, and scientific leadership in Mar- Mars exploration. If it's true and they bring it home, yeah, it's going to be, uh, you know, there's going to be some Spanian to do. Uh, so th- those were the imperatives for the, for the return of, of a sample, of a sample. Uh, however, um, there were some, well, not so good, not so good news, um, from the IRB. Basically saying that the strategic and the scientific value of the Mars sample return mission is not being communicated properly, not within the scientific community, not to Congress, and basically not to the general public. And that is a huge problem uh, for the program overall. The other problem, Larry, and again, you, you had mentioned this as we went into it, uh, MSR is definitely a priority for NASA and also in collaboration with the European Space Agency. However, the program was established with unrealistic budget and schedule ex- expectations from the start. It was also organized under a very, very unwieldy structure. And as a result, there is currently no credible, congruent, technical, nor properly managed schedule costs and technical baseline that could be accomplished within the likely available funding for the mission. Yeah. And there is. You read that report and it just starts sounding crazy. It starts sounding like totally impossible for things to move forward as, as planned without some huge restructuring, huge redesign, huge replanning of the goals of the entire mission. Funny you should mention that because that's exactly what's, what's going to happen, uh, to, to just kind of continue with some of the, some of the takeaways though. Uh, they, the program concluded, the IRB concluded that the mission is extraordinarily complex, uh, with multiple parallel developments, interfaces, complexities, and so on that are currently, and if you're ready for this, that are currently beyond the experience of the science mission directorate and the participants. So some think about that right now. We don't have, they're basically saying we don't have the tech yet for it. Uh, the, you know, the, the whole campaign is not arranged to be led effectively. Uh, the program management is impeded by three, by three things. The structure of MSR, uh, 
as a hybrid single program, tightly coupled program, that kind of thing, deficiencies in the organizational structure and unclear roles, accountability and authority. Those are the three, three real big issues surrounding the, the MSR program. So how is also, NASA going to respond to that? Well, that's part of one of the things that they're, they're trying to do right now. One of the things that um, Lori Glaze basically intimated was that, uh, uh, you know, Mars is still a priority for NASA. They want to go ahead and basically start this whole thing from scratch, basically tear it down and start with a whole new architecture. Uh, so does that does that imply that everything that's been done up to now goes down the drain or are they still save part of that? Or is it not that detailed? That's a good question. Well, I would say if you look at if you look at the history of when these things get sort of changed or renamed, a lot of architecture gets reused, even if it's not called the same thing. It's a long history of that happening with programs shifting and and within NASA. Yeah, exactly. Take a look at Orion. <laughs> it, it went from Constellation now to Artemis, but it it still weathered the same. You know, it, it it's still basically the same spacecraft. But uh, one of the things that uh, um, I'm Sandra Connolly, uh, NASA Sandra Connolly mentioned is um, is that uh, this is going to be be complex. It's going to be it's going to be extraordinarily difficult. Uh, We've they've basically been developing the science and engineering capabilities over two decades, and they are quite capable of getting the, this together. Uh, we've never before tried this, uh, and it's basically the the next step in maintaining uh, you know leadership for uh, for Mars. Uh, Go ahead, Larry. You wanted to say it's, something. It's it seems it seems to me like. If you start out with a, with a goal of doing something uh, like the sample return mission, you do it with the confidence that you'll be able to figure out all these problems. Okay, so if it's beyond your capabilities, yeah, it might be beyond your capabilities now, but that's why you start the program. That's why you start working on the designs. That's why you start working on the, the computer programming, everything else that you need to, to get the thing done. and. In the end, we usually figure it out. Yeah, but you know, the idea is also trying to keep this within a proper costs constraint. And that is the problem. I I believe the the National Academy has indicated that the mission should not go over 35% of the SMD budget. If it does, then you've got to go ahead and, and say what the heck is going on here because you don't want a single program. And that was, that was getting to be the problem with, with, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope when it was under, under construction, where it just seemed that they were running into technical challenge after technical challenge after technical challenge. And you've got to solve that challenge. Yes. But, one of the other things you've got to you've got to you know figure out is is there money in the budget to deal with these technical challenges, and there really wasn't. There was there was more of a success driven budget, not with a with a budget thinking of gotchas. And I think that's what they're trying to avoid here. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean the uh, again uh, to to kind of go back over here one of the problems again was was communication and i believe one of the scientists i believe it was uh, uh uh jim head basically said during the meeting that maybe what you kind of might want to do as far as the scientific community is to start looking at the samples that you've got or understand why you've collected them and then possibly you know write a white paper of some sort of of science that you possibly might be able to do with these samples and to kind of, you know, tantalize the scientific community with those white papers for each one of these samples and trying to say, hey, this is what we might be able to accomplish by taking a look at these things. So to, to 
basically get the, the the scientific community more involved and more interested in in the uh, in the program because I think that was one of the real complaints about about the program. It's not being it, it's it's basically kind of the ugly duckling right now of of, of, of you know of, uh, of science. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of the uh, discussion that we've been having for. 75 years about, uh, you know, why do we need to go to outer space? Why do we need to go to the moon? Why do we need to go to Mars? And, you know, there are a lot of people out there who at this point still don't, don't get that. They don't understand why it's so important. And they, it makes them reluctant to want to spend, you know, taxpayer money on it. And I think that that's something that to this day, that the, you know, NASA and related industries need to do a better job of trying to explain to the general public. And we're we're going to have a show about that sometime in the near future. Yeah. Um, and we, we should. That's why we we're sh- here, too. Yeah. yeah. That, Sawyer, thank yeah. you. That's about that, that's exactly what I was about to say. And that's yeah. why we're here as well to try to go ahead and 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 make this understandable, but try to also say, hey, this this is critical because we're we're not just shooting money into a, a capsule and sending it up up there. Right. The money first off is spent down here. That's one on, on people, on, on equipment, and so on. And, and it's, it's, it's not, not so much, you know, it's not so much trying to spend money, you know, trying to figure out new ways to spend money here. We're also trying to answer some really serious scientific questions, including really the search for, for our place in the universe and hopefully, uh, more sample return by looking at the samples returned, com- you know, brought back from Mars. We might go ahead and, and figure out if life really, really did exist there at one point. One of the other things I'm going to bring up too, and this is something that we've talked about on and off here is that they talked about, um, the aging Mars telecommunication infrastructure up there. That really there's, there's a whole fleet of spacecraft up there that is just kind of long in the tooth. And we're not too sure how long they're going to be able to go ahead and, and basically stay on orbit. And maybe perhaps there's an opportunity here, uh, for a commercial uh, endeavor, if you will. To go ahead and, and send a, a commercial relay satellite to uh, to Mars just simply as a communications link. That's that's one other. That's just an idea that just popped into my head. I know I know Maven is not going to going to be in the right position to help the Mars sample return mission. So Maven's out. Unfortunately, that's that's also our newest spacecraft. Well, Gene, uh, the first thing you're going to have to do is come up with a business case. Well, I think, you know, there you go. And, and that's, and, and that's going to be, again, some, some, uh, uh, somebody out there is going to be able to do it and perhaps go ahead and say, Hey, we will provide calm for perseverance. We will provide calm for other missions up out there. And yes. Oh, and by the way, once we humans get there, we will help provide calm for that too through through these satellites and you know maybe there maybe there's a business case there but uh, uh i mean there there are other unwieldy problems with with msr too uh the restricted launch period opportunities and mars arrival times cuz you're only i believe the the uh the opportunity to really shoot from Mars only comes about what every two years, something like that. So you're, you're constrained to a, a very, very short window for all of that. Also too, the, the orbit, the, uh, uh, the retrieval, how are you going to go ahead and execute that? Perseverance was going to go ahead and, and play a key role into that. But the idea is how, what kind of condition perseverance is going to be in around 2028, 2030 when this mission launches is it going to be available you have the possibility of two you know ingenuity class helicopters of also picking up these samples and return turning them over that costs money so you know again there's a bunch of unwieldy challenges nasa is going back to the drawing board 
to take a look at this, to try to make heads or tails of it and, and present a viable architecture. And as you pointed out, Larry, we have a tendency to go ahead, at least in our space program, say, yeah, we've got the challenges, but we've also think we've got the architecture in place to go ahead and overcome those challenges. And I think they'll go back to the drawing board, figure out how to stay within the cost cap, which is going to be a challenge in and of itself, and and make this mission work. I don't know if it's going to fly in 2030, um, but fingers crossed. Uh, we're still not even in phase A for for this mission so it hasn't really been fully green-lighted yet but uh this is going to be something to watch yep lots of lots of complexities lots of moving parts lots of uh lots of things to consider i will say another uh another thing can be challenging is getting us to stop talking about such an interesting topic (laughs) there really is a lot to go on but we do have more to cover (laughs) kirk out This last topic is, I think, the one of my favorites here, and that was, Kat, you were at Ascend, which is one of the coolest conferences around when it comes to this kind of stuff, and uh, you've got a little teaser for us. Yeah, I do. It was really exciting to be able to attend Ascend. Uh, it was my second year attending, and I went last year, and this year I was able to go on behalf of Talking Space to cover the event, and there were some really exciting things that I'm I'm looking forward to bringing to you. Um about Ascend. But for today, we have a very special sort of teaser for you. And that is that I had the opportunity to be able to interview Lindsay Caldon, who is the project manager for NASA's Fission Surface Program, which is about how we're going to have ways to power long-term bases or settlements on the moon and hopefully Mars. Um, Really exciting program, and Lindsay herself is is really inspiring, and she talks a little bit about her own journey into how she got into this role at NASA, which um, personally, as um, a woman in the space sector, for me, it was really exciting to hear and just very interesting. And she's going to tell us about that journey and also about the program, um, the Fission Service Power Program, which expands on the agency's uh, kilowatt project, which ended in 2018. So. This is an exciting time. It's sort of those we talk a lot on the show about, you know, how do we get to sustained human presence in space? And uh, one of the comments that I really enjoyed, not from this interview, but just from Ascend is we had, um, and I believe it might have been Pam Melroy who said this, but I'd have to check that, um, but said that, you know, sustained science in space requires sustained human presence. And this project is one of those projects that can enable not only sustain human presence, but sustain science and space because it's a re- it would be a reliable source of energy. So without further ado, I am going to play this interview for you. I'm here today with, at Ascend with Lindsay Calvin, who is the Fusion Surface Power Project Manager at NASA Glenn. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, yes, thank you for having me today. Uh, it's been a really great conference this week. Uh, again, my name is Lindsay Calden, uh, Vision Surface Power Project Manager out of NASA Glenn Research Center, which is located in Cleveland, Ohio. And just a little bit about myself. I've been uh, with NASA for, I guess it's been about six months now, fairly new um, to NASA, but not not new to the government. Uh, I, I came from a Department of Defense background. I started as an active duty Air Force officer. Back in the early 2000s, I, I worked electronic warfare on the U-2 and the Global Hawk, uh, which is an unmanned um, ISR platform, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance platform. And then I got out of the Air Force a little after four years. I left as a captain. Uh, I got my same job back as a government engineer. Uh, my bachelor's is electrical engineering, which kind of led me to that um, working uh, electronic warfare. But I... Uh, Continued a, a couple years uh, on the U2 and the Global Hawk, and then I I got um, uh, a job over for the Navy uh, for Nav Air, which is uh, Navy Air Platforms, and I worked on uh, BAMS, which was uh, the equivalent of the Global Hawk for the Air Force, and I worked on the Fire Scout, which is another unmanned system uh, that's an unmanned helicopter, 
I did some reliability and maintainability work for those platforms. And then I took some time off uh, to raise a family. I have four beautiful children. Um, but while I was doing that, I decided to get my master's in nuclear engineering. And I finished that in 2021 through Penn State. Uh, I love, love nuclear engineering. If I had looked back, I probably would have gotten my bachelor's in it. Uh, but it was it's a really great program uh, for any anybody that's thought about nuclear. Uh, definitely, I I would promote it. <laughs> like go go take a look at what what it entails. But it's a very fascinating field. Uh, I I finished uh, at, you know raising the children at home, got them all into school, and I I had just gotten my degree. I think I got presented the diploma on a Friday, and I started work for the Navy again on Monday. Uh, that, that weekend after, or that, that Monday after, and I, I got into electromagnetic poles for Nav C, so Navy C. Um, these are surface ships and subs and just looking at their defenses against an EMP attack, uh, in case that happened. But, um, what I found, it was a wonderful job. I loved it. Uh, it was a really exciting field, but I wasn't using my nuclear degree as much as I wanted to. And it was, really using my electrical engineering because the an EMP, it's created by a nuclear blast in space, but the effects are all electromagnetic once they um, come through the atmosphere. And so I was kind of uh, getting worried that if I didn't start using my nuclear, uh, I, I would lose it. I would start losing that knowledge. And so I went back out uh, on the USA jobs for looking for a federal job. And I saw this one for NASA vision surface power. And I thought, how perfect. I, I, the reason I joined the Air Force was to become an astronaut and <laughs> that, did, well, that didn't work out. But <laughs> I thought, wow, this is the next, like, this really is the next best thing. If I could be able to use my degree, nuclear engineering in a space environment, how perfect. And so I applied and, um, got through the process and I was, uh, I, I got the job and it's, it's really been wonderful. Um, what we're doing on the fission surface power project is building a small, uh, kilowatt class reactor. Right now our target's 40 kilowatts electric and we are hoping to get that, um, to the launch pad early 2030s to get, uh, placed on the surface of the moon. Uh, once it's up there, the plan is to have it operate for about 10 years and uh, and it, this is all kind of in preparation uh, for our end goal, which is getting to Mars um, and being able to use this power source on Mars. Um, let me see. No, no worries. No, that's really fascinating. Um, tell me, why is it important to have this type of power source as opposed to the ones that we already have in use in space, such as solar? That's a really great question. Uh, why, why the nuclear? Well, nuclear gives you... the. Nuclear gives you options. Um, it doesn't have to rely on the sun, and it doesn't have to rely on wind. Of course, on the moon, we don't have wind anyway, so we have to worry about. But uh, let's say we end up uh, in an area that maybe we end up in a crater that's permanently shadowed, and then that's where solar can uh, maybe is not as ideal as having a source of nuclear power available. Uh, and then also a lunar night is really long. It's 14 and a half Earth days long. And so you have this period where it's just dark and you're hoping, you know, your solar solar panels have worked and your batteries are charged up and everything. But the nuclear is a really great um, alternative um, it, and uh, would, would be good just as a backup, you know, or, or to share that uh, the, the power options up there um, as they are working out what that grid looks like. Uh, nuclear does give you a lot of options. Could you explain for our listeners a little bit about how this fission surface power differs from the RTGs that are already in use on other spacecraft and robotic uh, explorers? Sure. Uh, the, so RTGs, they they don't operate off of fission. It's a different um, it's a different means of utilizing the energy out of a nuclear uh, power source. And for RTGs, what they they use alpha emitting um, sources. So plutonium-238 is typically used. And when that decays, it gives off an alpha particle, um, about five megaelectron volts. And you can use that um, to power things. You can convert that into a, a means of power. So we've put those in, uh, I believe, Voyager and Cassini, and those are still operating today. And it's just that natural decay off of that alpha alpha source. It's a really cool technology, um, an application of that. Uh, however, uh, with 
with that though, plutonium 238 isn't, it's not produced naturally. So you do have to, uh, pull that out of, um, the fission process. And there's special reactors out there called breeder reactors that help produce that plutonium 238 source, but it, plutonium 238 can be kind of a scarce commodity sometimes. And so, um, fission is an, is, is looked at maybe as an alternative. Um, we have tested, uh, successfully tested out a small one kilowatt of space fission reactor called Krusty or Kilopower, uh, back in 2018, I believe it was, uh, where we could prove that, uh, fission could be an alt, maybe an alternative. Uh, you know, that one was only one kilowatt. Um, RTGs are typically in the, the watts. Um, so you're down in that area. Um, however, what we're looking for for the moon and possibly onto Mars is something that can give us a little bit more power, enough power to possibly power a habitat or power up a rover or maybe a small science thing going on there on the moon or, or whatnot. And so we need to look at um, a little bit more than one kilowatt. And so that's why we're kind of targeting 40 kilowatts. Um, the plan is to have uh, whatever that reactor design ends up being um, to be extensible onto Mars uh, or to, to be extensible um, to go higher in power, maybe. Uh, so it's it gives you it gives you a lot of options. Um, but that that would be the, the primary difference is the RTGs are it doesn't fission. It's just that that decay versus the, the actual fissioning thing. But we don't rely on plutonium 238. So. Um, that's why it's it's looked at. That's really fascinating. Um, with this technology, as so many NASA technologies have uh, applications back here on Earth. Yes, it does, and I'm glad that you you brought that up. So, uh, in industry right now, there's these advanced reactors coming out, advanced reactor designs, and they are uh, small modular reactors, and they're they're also called micro reactors. Uh, micro reactors, I, b- I believe, are about one to 50 megawatts electric. Uh, small modular reactors, about 50 to 300 megawatts electric. And then compared to a commercial reactor, which might be um, a thousand megawatts electric. And why advanced reactors are are kind of a thing right now? They're they're smaller. Like you can maybe kind of set them out, maybe smaller power grids uh, to to be able to utilize them. But possibly being transportable if they get small enough. Uh, which is really cool uh, if in the context of maybe um, the the military, you know, like maybe they want to get rid of that diesel supply chain. Um, and so maybe a nuclear, uh, a nuclear reactor of this power class, you know, small kilowatt range uh, could be a, could help fill that need um, that you can take it, you know, you can forward deploy with it and it doesn't need to be refueled and it can operate for quite a long time. I know for uh, nuclear, I've, I kind of, Talking about the military side of it, but um, nuclear isn't something new for the military. They have that in the Navy. Uh, Navy carriers have a nuclear reactor, and so do the subs. And I mean, those subs can go a very long time without having to resurface to, you know, refuel them. Um, and and I don't remember who I was talking to. I recently said the reason they they typically come up is just to replenish the food, <laughs> you know, on board. Um, but the the nuclear does give you a really uh, quite a reliable, clean, um, and long living supply of fuel. I know it's certainly a, a hot topic. As our listeners know, I'm based in Australia and we've had the um, AUKUS, everything is happening. I'm in South Australia and a lot of the the technology exchange from the AUKUS agreements are actually going to happen in South Australia. That's where it's going to be. So really exciting. Um, and I know we have just a short amount of time, but I wanted to ask a little bit because when I was talking to your colleague, Terry, yesterday, she mentioned that you're also focusing on some outreach efforts with this to work with universities or um, other people within the industry. Could you talk just a bit about the outreach efforts with this program? Sure. Uh, Yeah, what we've we've noticed is a lot of interest from students um, that at conferences like the Ascend Conference that we're at this week, I would say most of our, most of the folks coming by are students from various universities. And that is really a great sign because uh, for for the nuclear industry, um, there's been kind of a shortage in that workforce. Uh, not a lot of there hadn't been a lot of young up and coming nuclear engineers to help fill some of the the ones that have been out there already and getting ready to retire. And so it's really great to see the turnout and all the interest, um, especially nuclear and the ties to space. Um, what we 
what I'd like to do is see if we can't um, somehow maybe start looking at what these universities can offer. Um, I know that there's uh, their projects, some of the graduate work going on, they're looking at radiation hardened electronics, which we certainly need that on this reactor because we're dealing with radiation, not from the space, not just from the space environment, but also from the reactor itself. And so we need to make sure those electronics don't get zapped. You know, they don't <laughs> fail on us. Uh, and so maybe that's something that we can maybe do some, um, some sharing, you know, of some of these technologies that the, the universities are looking at. Uh, so we're not kind of duplicating the effort. And I, I feel like, um, there's a lot of work that is being done that way where it's, um, you know, one university might be researching it here and it's also happening over here. And, and I don't really see all that. And I'm, I'm going off and I'm paying somebody over here to do it. And I'm like, well, it would be really great if, you know, we can maybe come together. Let's find out who's all working on, on this stuff and, and kind of join forces, you know, and, and kind of help accelerate that too. Uh, so that's, uh, something that I've, I've asked um, my integration manager is, hey, let's gather these names of the universities. Well, maybe let's start going out and seeing what what projects they're working on that would be relevant to fission surface power. Uh, I I think that is definitely a great resource to be able to tap into. That's amazing. Well, Lindsay, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. It's really inspiring for me as a woman who's in the space sector to see someone who's in an area which I imagine is probably not that many women working in nuclear <laughs> Um So it's just really fantastic to see this. And, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. And um, if our listeners want to find out more, where should they go look? Okay. Uh, I wish I had my, I had a badge on me <laughs> that here had a special QR code. But if you go to uh, nasa.gov, there, there is a way to get to our fission surface power web page. And, uh, I can provide, I, I've also got, okay, you can put it in there. <laughs> but yes, there's, uh, or you could just Google NASA fission surface power and our website will come up and, and there will be more information about the project. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So as Lindsay said, uh, you can always find out more information about this. We're going to drop a link directly in the show notes so you can go and find out more about the Fission Surface Power Program. And we hope to be able to have Lindsay back on a later show and talk more about this as the project progresses. And then please stay tuned because in our next episode, we'll have some more uh, great content from Ascend. And we're really excited to be able to share this with you. One note, I think perhaps Mark might fight me for this conference next year because next year it's actually going to uh, run at a slightly different time because AIAA, who puts on Ascend, which uh, is going to have it in conjunction with their aviation conference. So they're going to do aviation first, a few days of overlap and with Ascend. So um, it would really hit Mark's sweet spot, I think. <laughs> By the way, for those who don't know, what is Ascend so we can tease more of the stuff coming up? So Ascend is essentially a space um, conference slash symposium where there's a mixture of a technical program where people actually submit papers in order to share um, technical aspects of what's going on in their workplaces with the industry, along with a series of sessions. They have um, macro, meta, and micro sessions, which all focus on um, different issues within the space industry. So everything from a bird's eye view of what's going on with regulation to in-depth programs on moon to Mars architecture or cislunar space. I set in on a very interesting session on regulatory issues. So it was with representatives from the FAA and the ITU talking about how do we regulate and have smart responsive regulation to the use of radio communications in space. So it really covers the gamut. And AIAA does an excellent job of putting on a send in a way that I don't often see the same people talking in the same content that I might see at other conferences I've been to. There's some conferences you go to and, you know, you have the same sort of big panels at the time. A lot of times they're saying a lot of the same things. Ascend really gets a lot of that sort of mid to senior level management that you might not always hear from, but has a really interesting uh, point of view and things to know about what's going on in the space industry. So it's not just like, hey, what are these big projects? There's also a really interesting con you know, conversation about on-orbit servicing and, and what 
do commercial providers need in order to be able to service or even refuel satellites in space? So I found that, you know, it's a very interesting conference and it certainly gives perspectives of issues that we tend to talk about here on the show that might that might not always be covered in the mainstream press of what's going on in space. Love it. And I think that's a perfect way to wrap up this episode and leave people wanting more. So thank you, everyone who joined us here, including Kat Robinson. Thank you for sharing that and for joining us tonight. Happy to be here. Thank you as well, Gene McCulka. It's been fun, Sawyer and Kat. I really love that interview. Seriously, I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully having your guest on here at some point in time. Thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. I'll see you next time. And I'd like to make a side note that we are aware of problems with the TalkingSpaceOnline.com website. It is in work, as they say in the business. Yes. But again, you can always get us through our RSS feed and through most major podcast providers. And thank you all for joining us, Larry Heron. Happy to be here, Sawyer. Good time. Thank you. Good time indeed. And we hope you had a good time and will join us for the next one. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.